This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where personal spiritual growth is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. All right, third week in a row, we're wearing the same clothes talking about the same book. <laughs> we're recording them all back to back to back. Um, but that that's okay. Of course it is. Because um, we, we kind of felt like we're on a roll with this. We just want to keep going with it. Yeah. Well, um, and I'll be reading more of this book tonight because it's just so good. It's so good. So good. I'm buying a copy tomorrow. Um, so, yeah. Um, chapter three. Chapter three. Let's do it. And this is, you said war stories. War stories. As you might imagine, we are talking about the troubling texts that are the Canaanite conquest narratives and holy war in general. Um, and Rachel is a fantastic storyteller. And so she tells some story that kind of leads up to how she got to, you know, or tells a story of these stories and the way it unfolds and the way they conquer and are instructed to commit genocide of these cities. And she says, when it comes to processing these troubling stories, there are generally three types of people. One, those who accept without question that God ordered the military campaigns in Canaan and has, excuse me, likely supported others throughout history. Two, those who are so troubled by the notion of God condoning ethnic cleansing that it strains their faith or compels them to abandon it. Three, those who can name all of the Kardashian sisters and are probably happier for it. (laughs) That. Yes. She says, I fit rather decidedly into the second category. The Bible's tales of violence and holy war, adding some of the first wrinkles to my pristinely starched faith. Uh, it, that's true for me. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm more in the second category as well. Yep. What's crazy is I, I started in the first category. Yep. And was firmly rooted there. Mm-hmm. And then started deconstructing um, other things, and then got here. Um, yeah. And and. It's very troubling. The yeah. violence in the Old Testament. Why, why is it troubling? Because if Jesus is our litmus test, mm-hmm. which Rachel seems to be doing back in chapter one, mm-hmm. um, we see the exact opposite from him. And in, in fact, as she talked about in the last chapter with the whole turn the other cheek thing, mm-hmm. well, you're actually supposed to give up power and take the take the beating, take the violence upon yourself. Yep, one thousand percent. She quotes Thomas Paine: "Belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man." Hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, Believe. hold on. Let's just let's stop there for a second. 
Belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. Yeah. Have truer words ever been spoken? Um, No, because if we believe that we, the people, are made in the image of God, then whatever truth we make up about God shows up in our personhood. If we believe... Oh my gosh, I'm about to step on some people's toes. Um, If we believe that a God commanded and is okay with genocide, therefore you will be okay with genocide. Like in very crude terms, that's what that is saying. And yeah, that. So, yes. And this is what she says to, to affirm what you said. If the Bible teaches that God is love and love can look like genocide and violence and rape, then love can look like anything. Mm. It's as much an invitation to moral relativism relativism, Mm. as you'll find anywhere, which truer words have never been spoken. That's why... The Crusades happened. That's why 9-11 and the war in Iraq Mm. was considered God's war. That's why Nazism happened, according to Karl Barth at least. Right? That That, that's Nazism. Yes. Um and 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 we don't see the problem here. (laughs) I, I do not understand how we don't see the problem. I'm sorry, and I know that there's I don't I don't mean to be so controversial. I should be taking more of a middle stance of the audience. I apologize. But th- this is something that I am deconstructing currently. Um, and th- where I'm sitting and at where I feel like a lot of our listeners are sitting um, is in this space of that is really troubling. Um, the fact that the holy good God... Mm-hmm. is commanding and allowing genocide um, and also all of these horrific things have come based off of that. That is true. Um, that is true. It's extremely... Yeah. Yep. It That is 100% true. Now, she continues to go on to talk about Some of the ways that this is interpreted and played out. Um, and she is correct that archaeology does not confirm everything in the Bible recorded from the Canaanite conquest narratives. Archaeology does not confirm it. We have found cities mm-hmm. and dug them up, excavated them, that the Bible claims that were conquered. They do not have a destruction layer for the time period of the Canaanite conquest. Interesting. 
you just, you know, I don't, if you're looking for archaeology to confirm every truth that's recorded in the Bible, you're just not going to get it. Yeah. Like it just doesn't exist. And this is what Peter ends. If you remember him mm -hmm. from our, our, our last conversation, no, our chapter one conversation, oh, chapter one, my bad. For the biblical writers, writing about the past was never simply about understanding the past for its own sake, but about shaping, molding, and creating the past to speak to the present. The Bible looks the way it does, he concluded, because God lets his children tell the story. You see the children's fingerprints all, all over the pages of Scripture. From its origin stories to its deliverance narratives to its tales of land, war, and monarchy. Now, I'm about to read a massive paragraph of hers because I could tell you, but she just, she's such a good writer. First of all, beautifully said by Peter Inns. Yes. Beautifully said. Yes, 100%. For example... As the Bible moves from conquest to settlement, we encounter two markedly different accounts of the lives of Kings Saul, David, and Solomon, and the friends and enemies who shaped their reigns. The first appears in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. These books include all of the unflattering details of kingdom politics, including the account of how King David had a man killed so he could take the man's wife, Bathsheba, for himself. On the other hand, First and Second Chronicles omit the story of David and Bathsheba altogether, along with much of the unseemly violence and drama around the transition of power between David and Solomon. Mm -hmm. This is because Samuel and Kings were likely written during the Babylonian exile, when the people of Israel were struggling to understand what they'd done wrong for God to allow their enemies to overtake them. And First and Second Chronicles were composed much later, after the Jews had returned to the land, eager to pick up the pieces. While the authors of Samuel and Kings viewed the monarchy as a morality tale to help them understand their present circumstances, the authors of Chronicles recalled the monarchy with nostalgia, a reminder of their connection to God's anointed, as they sought healing and unity. As a result, you get two noticeably different takes on the very same historic events. That is a really good way of explaining that storytelling, even when being true and faithful to the text, storytelling has shown up as markedly different because of the people telling the story, yep. the time period in which the story is told, yep. which means the end result of the story needs to be different. Yeah. I'll let her, I wanted to jump to the conclusion. I will let her draw her own conclusion for you. She then enters into a conversation about these troubling stories. And what do we do with them? There's, and she concludes, there's really no great answer. No. We don't have a great answer. This may be my favorite comment she made in the entire chapter. 
It's not always clear what we are meant to learn from the Bible's most troubling stories. But if we simply look away, we learn nothing. Hmm. If we fall into the third categories, of the, the, and we know all the, the Kardashians, yeah. we've learned nothing. Hmm. We have literally learned nothing from these stories, which were put there for whatever reason, you know. Yeah. We, we don't gain anything useful from it. And Correct. God's word never returns void. Correct. Right? So even in these troubling stories, the authority of Scripture still shines through and there's still something to learn and glean from. Correct. Yeah. So that's her point number one. She draws three conclusions from these war stories. Point number one is that the stories don't always stick to the script, which is true. Um, in Joshua, we're told, or so the story goes in Joshua, that the Israelites wiped out the Moabites. Utter end mm. to the Moabites. Well, that's not true because they show up in a battle in Kings. So there wasn't an utter end to them. Yeah. It's hyperbole. Right. It like it's it the way it's that it's used um, there as a literary device. Yeah. To tell the story. The way um I can't remember. Oh, Joshua Ryan Butler. He wrote um The Skeletons in God's Closet. He called it ancient trash talk. That's what he called it. Um hmm. There's a lot of that in scripture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I like the way he words that. Yeah. Ancient trash talk. I like that. Yep, here it is. Uh, the, the exact phrasing is total destruction, and this is her comment on it. The Moabites, for example, claimed in an extra biblical text that their victory in a battle against an Israelite army, the nation of Israel, utterly perished for always, which obviously isn't the case. Mm-hmm. And even in Scripture itself, stories of conflict with Canaanite tribes persist through the book of Judges and into Israel's monarchy, which would suggest Joshua's armies did not, in fact, wipe them from the face of the earth, at least not in a literal sense. So that's our point number one, is that the stories don't always stick to the script. Mm -hmm. And as much as God asked them to commit genocide, Mm -hmm. and even when the stories said they did, as the story unfolds later, we just know it's not true. So that's her point number one, is that it doesn't it doesn't make what happened okay, but we should also understand that there's a little bit of embellishment here that happens in these stories, mm. and we need to wrestle with them in order to learn something from right. them. The second thing, and this I thought was really interesting. I'm just going to actually read the entire paragraph. Okay. The second thing I know is that we are not as different from ancient Israelites as we would like to believe. It was a violent and tribal culture, people like to say, of ancient Israel to explain away its actions in Canaan. But as Joshua Ryan Butler astutely observed when it comes to civilian casualties, we tend to hold the ancients to a much higher standard than we hold ourselves. 
In the time it took me to write this chapter, nearly 1,000 civilians were killed in airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, many of them women and children. The atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki took hundreds of thousands of lives in World War II, and far more civilians died in the Korean War and Vietnam War than American soldiers. Even though America is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, it takes in less than half of 1% of the world's refugees, and drone warfare has left many thousands of families across the Middle East terrorized. Mm. This is not to excuse Israel's violence, because modern-day violence is also bad, nor is it to trivialize debates over just war theory and U.S. involvement in various historical conflicts, which are complex issues far beyond the scope of this book. Rather... It ought to challenge us to engage the Bible's war stories with a bit more humility and introspection, willing to channel some of our horror over atrocities passed into questioning elements of the war machines that still roll on today. I think that's a really good point, that that for all of the problems that we have with ancient Israel and their stories of war— we become hypocrites when we advocate for our own xenophobia oh. and genocide and wars in this world. No question. I mean, it just, and, and I actually don't want to be as nice as they are. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually think, yes, your point taken, all our atrocities, right? All should be gone. All should be voided from the world. Um, and finally, Rachel's final takeaway, um, or the final thing she knows, and then there's something that, something else I want to read. Finally, the last thing I know is this, if the God of the Bible is true, And if God became flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ is, as theologian Greg Boyd put it, the revelation that culminates and supersedes all others, then God would rather die by violence than commit it. The cross makes this plain. Mm. On the cross, Christ not only bore the brunt of human cruelty and bloodlust and fear, he remained faithful to the nonviolence he taught and modeled throughout his ministry. Boyd called it the crucifixion of the warrior God. Mm. And in a two-volume work by that name asserted that on the cross, the diabol- uh, diabolic, violent warrior God we have all too frequently pledged allegiance to has been forever repudiated. On the cross, Jesus chose to align himself with the victims of suffering rather than the inflictors of it. Mm. Yeah. That's the argument that I always make, is that the truth that I find in Jesus stands in direct contradiction to whatever happened in these war stories. And at this point, yes, it's in Scripture, it's authoritative, it matters, and there are still truths to glean from it. Largely what matters in this conversation is the fact that Jesus gave us an example of how not to be violent. Yes. And that is the example that we need to stand by now in this current moment. Yes. Very much so. Now, That's where I'm at. 
Um, I still don't know what to glean from and what to learn from the Canaanite conquest stories. And maybe we're getting there. Here you go. This is what she says. The truth is, I've yet to find an explanation for the Bible's war stories that I find completely satisfying. If we view this through Occam's razor and choose the simplest solution to the problem, we might conclude that the ancient Israelites invented a deity just to justify their conquests and keep their people in line. As such, then, the Bible isn't a holy book with human fingerprints. It's an entire human construction responsible for more vice than virtue. There are days when that's what I believe. Days when I mumble through the hymns and creeds at church because I'm not convinced they say anything true. And then there are days when the Bible pulls me back with a numinous force I can only regard as divine. Days when Hagar and Deborah and Rahab reach out from the page, grab me by the face and say, pay attention, this is for you. Mm. I'm in no rush to patch up these questions. God, save me from the day when stories of violence, rape, and ethnic cleansing inspire within me anything other than revulsion. I don't want to become a person who is unbothered by these texts, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then I don't think he wants me to be either. There are parts of the Bible that inspire, parts that perplex, and parts that leave you with an open wound. I'm still wrestling, and like Jacob, I will wrestle until I am blessed. God hasn't let go of me yet. War is a dreadful and storied part of the human experience, and Scripture captures many shades of it, from the chest-thumping of the victors to the anguished cries of victims. There is ammunition there for those seeking religious justification for violence and solidarity for all the mothers like Rispa who just want an end to it. For those of us who prefer to keep the realities of war at a safe, sanitized distance and who enjoy the luxury of that choice, the Bible's war stories force a confrontation with the darkness. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. <laughs>